Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in our continuing study of John's Gospel today, and we are going to pass on to the next chapter, chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses or so. If we have time, we'll move on from there, but somehow I doubt it. So, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to follow along. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we have passed on now to this sixth chapter of John and to what I'm sure to most of you is a very familiar story, the feeding of the multitude or the feeding of the 5,000. There's some debate among scholars as to exactly how many people were there because the text says 5,000 men. Now did that mean just 5,000 people or did it mean 5,000 men specifically and then women and children in addition. If that was the case, it was far more than just 5,000 that Jesus fed on this particular occasion. But at any rate, one of the things to acknowledge right off the, the beginning here is that this is the only one of Jesus' miracles that he performed that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the only one recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is the synoptics, but also included in John's Gospel as well. Now you know that the gospel writers were very particular about the things that they chose to include in their narratives. Luke and, and Mark and Matthew include other things that John does not. And John acknowledges at the end of the gospel, he says, 
Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book. In fact, he says, if I were to record them all, the world could not contain the volumes. He said, but these have been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel writers are clear. They're not going to include everything. They have a message that they want to impart to their readers or to their listeners. And so they're going to be selective in their material. But it is interesting, isn't it, that this is the one miracle that they all include. Now you might say, well, what about the resurrection? The resurrection was not Jesus' miracle. Jesus was dead. It was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. But of the Lord's own miracles, or as they're referred to here in John as signs, this is the only one that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, at the very least, what that should tell us is that it made a deep impact on the people. A deep impact on the people. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were living in an agrarian culture. Uh, They did not have the advantages that we have today, the luxuries that we have today, the convenience that we have today. Let's just go ahead and admit that. I mean, last night it occurred to me, we're taking a road trip today to take my daughter to go see a college. We're going after church. And I realized that I needed something at the store. And it was 11 o'clock. And I realized I was not going to get a chance to get out before we left. I got in the car, ran across the James Island, and was back in 15 minutes. Probably broke a few speed limits, but I was back, and the stores were open. We call them convenience stores. And we have grocery stores, 24-hour grocery stores, for example. If you need something, you go down to the Harris Teeter. And if they don't have it at the Harris Teeter, you go to the Piggly Wiggly. And if they don't have it at the Pig, well, you go on down to Publix. But these things are conveniences for us, and they're readily available. You understand that in the first century, that was not the case. This whole idea of a middle class, incidentally, is a relatively new thing. Through much of history, there was no such thing as a middle class. That's in large measure the result of the Industrial Age. So people pretty much lived off the land. And this is why Jesus told many parables that have to do with seeds and fields and wheats and tares and all that sort of thing because that was the world in which these people lived and moved and literally had their being. When you live in that kind of an agrarian culture, food is a precious commodity. I mean, if a blight comes upon your crop, or if there is a a freeze that comes upon your crop, or there is a drought that comes upon your crop, it's not just that you're in trouble, your whole community could just disappear in the matter of weeks. So food was a precious thing, and I think that's one of the reasons why this made such a deep impression on the people. Here were these people, here was a man, he could take five five loaves of bread, two small fish, break them, and feed in excess of 5,000 people. Who is this man? It's no wonder that they refer to him not merely as a prophet, but as the prophet. So that's the first thing to acknowledge right off the bat, that this is the only one of Jesus' miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And each of the Gospel writers emphasizes a different aspect of it. Matthew and Luke, for example, emphasize the miracle itself, the fact that Jesus did this tremendous thing. Mark seems to emphasized the idea of Jesus' loving compassion. He had crossed over the sea to get away from the people. Because, you know, 
Everybody needs a break. But when they came to him, he had compassion on them. And because it was a lonely place, he recognized that he needed to provide for their physical needs. John, and this is made very clear here at the beginning, regards this as a time of testing for the disciples. That's when you see one of the disciples comes to Jesus, said, what are we going to do? And Jesus said, well, you give him something to eat. You give them something. It was a a test. And it's a test because it is a prelude to one of Jesus' most provocative and controversial teachings, what is known as the bread of life discourse. It's a teaching that Jesus will give, and what he has to say in that bread of life discourse will be so upsetting to some of his disciples not the 12 inner circle, but to some of his followers that we're told they will turn back and follow him no more. So this miracle is a prelude to that in John's gospel. It's a genuine miracle of Jesus. At least one of these individuals, of course, was an eyewitness to the events. And it is in four independent sources. Now, why do I emphasize all of that? simply because this is the one miracle that has been taken to task by liberals, by the skeptics. They said, this just just can't happen. I mean, how can anybody feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, two fish, and then have 12 baskets full left over? And they've tried to come up with all kinds of ingenious explanations. I suppose the one that is most popular is this idea that it really wasn't a miracle in the sense that Jesus did something extraordinary, supernatural, but rather Jesus brought forward this little boy. And this little boy, you know, everybody probably had their packed lunches. This is, this is the liberal view. Everybody had their packed lunches and they went out there, um, but nobody was willing to share. You know, you're taught when you're in elementary school, you should share. But nobody's willing to share except for this young boy who comes forward with his meager, you know, little fish and his little bread, and, and, and he's willing to share with everyone else. And when the rest of the crowd saw what the young boy was doing, oh, they were moved in their hearts. They felt so guilty. And so everybody began to break out their lunches, and they shared with everybody else, and the entire multitude was fed. And the idea is that the miracle was what took place in the hearts of the people. Baloney. Um, it's clear from the text that that is not what happens. Now, if you've got a problem with the supernatural, you're going to have a problem with this. Quite frankly, you're going to have a problem with Christianity in general because the whole thing is filled with the supernatural. The greatest miracle of all, of course, is the resurrection, the idea that Jesus was dead and was raised again. You're going to have a problem with the idea of a virginal conception, You're going to have a problem with the incarnation. You're going to have a problem with the healings, with the walking on the water, with the calming of the seas. You're going to have a problem with all of that. Now, I don't think you should have a problem with that for the simple reason that if you can believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth, the vast expanse of space, the cosmos, if you can believe in a God who can create all of that ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the sheer power of his word. Come on, folks. Raising somebody from the dead is child's play. And so is this. 
So don't downplay the supernatural, as many people are inclined to do. This was clearly a miracle, and as I said, it clearly made an impression on the people precisely because it was a miracle. In fact, what we're going to discover is that Jesus, after this miracle, the people want to make him a king. He is the prophet. He's the Messiah. They want to make him the king, and Jesus, not wanting to be made the king by force because he hadn't come to be that kind of a king, has to cross to the other side of the sea in order to get away from them. And you know what they do? They chase him to the other side of the lake. He takes a boat. They take the roundabout route, but they're so fast that by the time he gets there, and there's a reason, they run into a storm, and we'll talk about that next week probably. But by the time they get there, there's the crowd waiting for him. And Jesus' first words are these, I tell you the truth, you are seeking me, not because of my words, but because you ate and had your fill of the fish and the loaves. In other words, Jesus knew that the reason they were coming is because they recognized he was a one-man S&S cafeteria. <laughs> Pure and simple. So a miracle has taken place here, and it made a deep impression on the people. Now let's talk a little bit about the context, because the context for this event is significant. Uh, it took place on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 1 says that Jesus passed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He'd been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So he passed to the other side of the sea, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. He went there, it's obvious, to get away from the crowd. We mustn't forget that Jesus, while he was divine, was also human. And he sometimes became weary. He even became frustrated mostly with the disciples, but he became weary. He, he got tired, and uh, he was trying to get away in order to get some rest. He was also, I think by this point, doing everything in his power to avoid a collision with the Jewish religious leaders, which we have already seen has been brewing for some time. That's what the whole fifth chapter is all about. They didn't like what Jesus did in terms of the Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath. And they certainly didn't like the claims that he was making for himself. So Jesus could sense that a collision was coming. But one of the things that you will notice throughout the Gospel of John, there are a number of refrains or themes or phrases that continually come up in the Gospel of John. We'll talk about a number of them later on, what are called the I am statements. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So there's a series of those statements. There's also this expression, my hour, my hour, my hour. And every time Jesus uses that expression, he's always saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. For example, earlier on in this gospel, we're told that when Jesus performed his first miracle, which was at a wedding in Cain of Galilee, turning the water into wine, you'll recall that his mother came to him and she said, they've run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what is the hour that he's referring to? It's the hour when he is revealed as the true Messiah. This is what is commonly referred to as the messianic secret by New Testament scholars. Jesus kept somewhat secret his claim to be the Messiah. Now, he did miracles that indicated that he was the Messiah, but he was reluctant to just say it out loud for the simple reason that he knew that people had a particular idea of what the Messiah was going to be and do. 
He was going to be a, a political messiah, or he was going to be a military messiah. He was going to drive out the Romans because, after all, it was the evil Roman Empire that was oppressing the people. Now, Jesus knew that was not the case. And so he did everything in his power to avoid a collision. His hour had not yet come. Now, a collision is coming, but not yet. The hour had not yet come. A little bit of trivia. When was it that Jesus said, the hour has come? There comes a point in the gospel narrative where Jesus says, the hour has come. When is it? Anybody know? It's not the Samaritan woman. Ah, Miss M. Whipple got it right. You get the gold star. She said it's when the Greeks come to Jesus. It's what's depicted in the window over our high altar. And they come to Philip. And they say, we would see Jesus. To Philip. We would see Jesus. And Jesus is told this. And he says, my hour has come. My hour has come. So just lock that away. And when you go into church today, not during the sermon, but before the sermon, take a look at the window and you'll see those figures down there at the bottom. All right? So that is the context. Something else here, though. Jesus is not only passing over to get some rest and avoid a collision with the Jewish religious leaders because his hour has not yet come, but we're told that this was the time of the Passover. It was the Passover. Look at verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said again, here's Philip. Jesus said to Philip. So it is interesting that this was the Passover. Uh, this was the major feast for the Jews. So lots of people crowding the roads and the highways, making their way on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So Jesus has passed to the other side to avoid a collision. He's passed to the other side to get some rest. But lo and behold, the crowds are following, and they're large. Something else about this particular section. It signals the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. This will be one of his last miracles, last teachings to take place in the northern part of Israel. Uh, Jesus, from this point forward, is going to be moving south toward Jerusalem. And what does that inevitably mean? It means he is moving toward the cross. So it's the huge crowds that follow him up here in Galilee. Huge crowds. We're going to see, as Jesus continues to make his way toward Jerusalem, that those huge crowds are going to dwindle. It's going to start, as I said, after this miracle, when he goes on to do the Bread of Life discourse, this teaching. He says, you, you've come here because you ate your fill and the fish and the loaves, but do not strive for that bread which does not satisfy. I tell you the truth, I am the bread. I am the bread. That's what Jesus is setting everything up for. So this is the fourth miracle that Jesus is going to perform. Probably not the fourth one that he performed in his ministry, but probably the fourth one that John is going to mention. All right. The only the fourth one that John mentions. The first miracle was, of course, water into wine, which symbolized the fact that Jesus is the one who brings joy. Remember, in John's gospel, all the miracles are signs. That's how he describes them. So he's including them specifically because they teach us something about Jesus and his ministry. 
So the changing of the water into wine, we said that wine was symbolic of joy. They'd run out of joy, so to speak, at this wedding, and Jesus brought joy. And we said, what that teaches us at the very least is that Jesus is comfortable around those who are having a good time, and he's welcomed by those who are having a good time. But he is the source of all true joy, not mere happiness, which is dependent upon your circumstances, but true and lasting joy. Second miracle was the healing of the official's son. That reminds us that Jesus is with us always. You'll recall from our teaching. And then there was the miracle that we have been looking at the last several weeks, and that is the healing at the pool of Bethesda, which teaches us that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, what is this miracle meant to teach us? Why does John include it? For that matter, why did Matthew, Mark, and Luke include it? What does it teach us? Well, this is a miracle that teaches us a number of things. First of all, it teaches us that there will always be a failure of human resources. And I don't just mean that on a grand scale, on a global scale. I mean that in your own life. Sooner or later, you are going to run out of resources. Now, I'm not talking about financial resources. Some of you, I don't know what your financial situation is. You may never run out of financial resources. But sooner or later, you will run out of other resources. The doctor may come in and give you the long face, at which point you've run out of resources. You may lose a loved one. You may lose your job. But sooner or later, you will run out of resources. And that will be for you a time of testing. Now, I'm not trying to be glum. That's just a fact, and we all know that. Nobody's going to live on this planet forever. So this was a time of testing, and that is made very clear here in John chapter 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, to test him, because he already knew what he was going to do. When we're told that difficulties come into our lives and our resources run out, and I say we're being tested, this is not the kind of test where God is testing us to see whether we're going to pass or we're going to fail. God does not set us up for failure. It's a different kind of testing. It is the kind of testing that a person goes through like steel goes through testing in a fire. You know, it's tempered. It's ready. It's like silver or gold being tempered or purified in a fire. It's that kind of a test. It's not, oh, let me see how much they know and how they're going to mess up. No, not at all. God's not like that at all. He wants to test us in order to make us strong, to purify us, to present us without spot or blemish. When I say it's a failure of human resources, what do I mean? Four things in particular. First of all, this miracle is meant to teach us that we have no power to feed ourselves. Again, not physically, because all of these things are pointing to something beyond. Most people go through life desperately searching for something. Searching for contentment, searching for peace, searching for satisfaction. I think the contented life is what people want more than anything else. And many people who have everything that money can buy are nevertheless restless. 
St. Augustine got it right. He said, our hearts are restless until what? They find their rest in thee. So this miracle is meant to teach us that we cannot feed ourselves. We cannot satisfy ourselves. You, you will never find true satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ. Now, as you're going to hear in the sermon today, and the preacher went a little long this morning, you'll have to give him a little bit of grace. But one of the things that you're going to hear is that we try to satisfy ourselves. We, we try to fill up those voids in our life. And this is something that in a first world country we can sometimes try to do. We, we can try to entertain ourselves. We're an entertainment culture. We can engage, and I say this in the sermon, in retail therapy. I think about that. That's actually a phrase, retail therapy. But what you discover is that you can pour it all into the hole and still it is not satisfied. So this teaches us that we have no power to feed ourselves, no power to satisfy ourselves, no power whatsoever to save ourselves, either physically or spiritually, and we have no power to defend ourselves. These people who came to Jesus on this occasion had nothing. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring. This coming week, as you all know, is the beginning of Lent. Ash Wednesday, this week, the beginning of the Lenten season. This is the colic for the third Sunday in Lent. It's a wonderful colic. It says, Almighty God, who seest that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's a wonderful collect. That's a collect that we ought to pray every morning if you think about it. Almighty God, who seest that we have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves. Have you ever been there? You ever been in that place where you're thinking, Lord, I have no power in and of myself to help myself? Have you ever been in that point where you, you don't even know what to pray for? Well, if you haven't, you will be. And isn't it a comfort to know that there is one who is capable of meeting your need? So the first lesson we learn is a lesson that most of us already know from life. That we have no resources in and of ourselves. But here's the second lesson. And that is the sufficiency of Christ. It is the sufficiency of Christ that even though we have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves, nothing is impossible with the Lord. I pointed out that these people were living in an agrarian culture and that all it took was a blight or a drought to wipe out that entire community. This is why over and over again in the Old Testament and Isaiah and the Psalms, you can read them for yourselves, the people were always thanking God for his daily provision this is one of the reasons why in the Lord's Prayer we say, give us today our daily bread. Because we know that every good and perfect gift comes down from God. And it's not just the physical sustenance that God provides for us. It's the spiritual sustenance. Because even if you live in a land where you can satisfy the belly, you cannot satisfy the soul. 
So there is a spiritual feeding that takes place. Now, you've all heard the expression supply and demand. One of the things that this lesson teaches us is that when it comes to Jesus, you know, oftentimes it's the case where demand outstrips supply. When you come to Jesus Christ, it's just the opposite. The supply outstrips the demand. We're told that Jesus took the bread, broke it, and fed how many people? 5,000 people. And how many baskets full were left over? 12 baskets full. Now, we're going to see that that's very important, I think, in the next story that comes up in the gospel, this storm on the Sea of Galilee. But the point here is that they had meager resources, but Jesus was able to provide for them. And he's able to provide for you in an abundance. Some of you out there today perhaps are restless. I want you to understand that if you come to Jesus, he can meet your need. You know, some of us have restless hearts. We're, we're always troubled. We're always looking for the next thing. We think if we could just have that relationship, everything's going to be better. And so you end up being a serial monogamist. One relationship to the next relationship. If, if I can just have a child, I'll be satisfied. And then you meet the person, they've had a child, and lo and behold, there's still something missing in their life. They're not satisfied. If I could just hit the lottery, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, but you know what it is. We say, if I can just have this, I will be satisfied. And what you discover is that nothing in this world can satisfy. There is still this demand. But I want you to know that if you come to Jesus Christ, his supply will outstrip your demand. Are you burdened? Burdened by sin, by guilt, by shame? Some of us have done things, said things that we regret. And we carry that burden with us like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. We carry it as a great burden upon our lives. And it makes us ineffectual in terms of being used by God. Bring your burden, bring your shame, bring your guilt, bring your past, bring whatever it is to Jesus Christ. And I promise you this. There is a wideness in his mercy like the wideness of the sea. His supply will outstrip your demand. Are you anxious today? How many of you are nervous Nellies? I suspect there's probably quite a few out there. We are told to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. His supply will always outstrip your demand. Are you tempted? Are you tempted? You've heard me talk about the evil day. The Bible talks about the evil day. You know what the evil day is? Most of you do if you've been sitting under my teaching for a while. Let me tell you what the evil day is. When the Bible talks about the evil day, it's when your desires and your opportunities meet. You know, there are times when we're tempted to sin, but doggone it, we don't have the opportunity. And then there are other times when, well, I've got the opportunity, I just don't really have the desire. The evil day is when your desire and the opportunities meet. And the reason why the Bible tells us to avoid the evil day is because you and I, when opportunity and desire meet, have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves to resist. But you can come to Jesus who was tempted in every way, just as we have been tempted, yet without sin. 
and by his power you can prevail, his supply will outstrip your demand. Jesus saw the needs of these people. Interestingly enough, Jesus saw it before anybody else saw it. And he met that need. And I want you to understand, he will always meet that need. I don't know about you, but when I read through a story like this, I have to use my imagination. I try to picture it in my mind's eye. Incidentally, that's one of the reasons why I do not like movies about the Bible. I, I never have. I know some people just love those, and I've seen a couple episodes of The Chosen, and I will say that that's pretty good. But on the whole, I just don't like it because I think to myself, that's not in my, and you may not be like this, but, you know, having majored in history and being a lover of history, I cannot watch movies like The Patriot because all I can do is go through, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right, and my wife says, why don't you just be quiet and enjoy the film? Well, I can be quiet, but I'm not going to enjoy the film. It's just, it's just not going to work that way. So when I watch Bible stories, it's just, I, that's not right, that's not right. That's definitely not right. So I have to use my imagination. And I've tried to imagine this miracle in particular. I can imagine many of them and how Jesus did it. But this, this miracle, this is one that stumps us. And this is one of the reasons why I think skeptics really struggle with this one in particular. Because you think to yourself, how in the world? Five loaves of bread, two small fish. How did he do that? Maybe they just took the baskets. And as everybody reached into the basket, oh, there's more in there. Okay. How did this miracle take place? Well, it's interesting. If you read Mark's version of the story, as I said, it's written in all four of the Gospels. Mark's version is really interesting. Keep your finger there in John and turn back to Mark for just a minute. To Mark chapter 6. And this is not necessarily clear in the English, but it is clear in the Greek. So Mark 6 Verse 41. Excuse me. No, take that back. Does that say 41 up there? Well, that's wrong. It's Mark 6, probably verse 4. No, all right, hold on. Just hold on. Verse 14, is that what it is? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I was right, after all. So, Well, the reason is I'm, re I'm looking at the wrong gospel, so it would be helpful if you look at the right. <laughs> I have got to get better glasses than this. Yes, okay. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Now, what I want you to notice is the word gave. All right? A couple of things that are interesting. It says that he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Actually, it's the same word. It, it's the same word. Said a blessing. Actually, it says gave a blessing. And then it says he gave the fish and the loaves. Now, what I find interesting is that in the Greek, that first time, in verse 41, where he says, gave thanks. That is in what is known as the aorist tense. What is the aorist tense? It's a little bit technical. But the aorist tense means an action that happened once but was not repeated. So 
Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks. And what that means is he gave thanks once. And then he moved on to something else. The second time the word is used, however, and he gave the bread and the fish to the disciples, that is in what is known as the imperfect tense. It means that Jesus gave it and continued to give it. So he gave thanks once. He took the bread and gave it to the disciples, but that was a continuing action. Now, what does that tell us? You may say, I don't know what it tells me. You tell me. It tells us that the miracle itself took place in Jesus' hands. He gave thanks. Then he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he continued to give it to his disciples. And there was an endless supply. I want you to know that when you bring your meager supply to Jesus Christ, in his hands, it can be used to feed the world. You know, as disciples, we are called to follow the example of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that when Philip came to him and said, these people, you need to send them away because it's getting late and they're going to be hungry, Jesus says to him, you feed them. And what's Philip's response? <laughs> 200 denarii would not feed a crowd like this. I don't have anything. And then somebody says, well, here's a little boy. He's got five loaves, two small fish. And what does Jesus say? It's enough. Do you understand that you and I are called to feed the world? That's what we're called to do. Jesus says, you feed them. Once we have been fed by Jesus Christ, it is our responsibility to go out and feed others. Now, you think to yourself, but I don't have much. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I'm not an expert in the Bible. I'm an, I'm an introvert. You don't know my past. I think I've been disqualified from serving in this capacity. I want you to understand something. Bring whatever it is that you've got. Bring your meager supply of faith. Jesus says you don't have to have a lot of faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Bring what little faith you have. Bring what little courage you have. Bring what little trust you have. Bring what little love you have and place it in the hands of Jesus Christ. And I promise you this, whatever it is, however meager the supply, Jesus will turn to you and he will say, it's enough. And he will use it to feed you, to feed your family, and to feed the world. Whatever your need, his supply will always outstrip it. And however meager your resources in the hands of the Lord, it will always be enough. Let us pray. Father, we are fearful people. Sometimes all we can see, like the disciples on this occasion, is the vast need of the world, this yawning chasm of humanity. We think to ourselves, we have nothing to offer, and that's true.
we have very little truth be known to offer. We have no power, first of all, in and of ourselves to help ourselves. And without you, we are lost completely. And in terms of our vocation as Christians, to feed the world, to, to feed the people that we see around us, not just physically but spiritually, we think to ourselves, we just, what is this for so many? And yet the Lord says, bring your meager resources, put them in my hands. And for me, it will always be enough. There will be an abundance of what I can do. Father, grant us the courage today that if we feel that we are just empty, just drained dry to come to Jesus Christ and allow him to feed us till we want no more, as the hymn says. And if we are filled up, but we feel, so we, we do not have the ability to do anything in terms of making a difference, grant us the grace just to bring whatever we have and put it in the hands of Jesus that like this multitude, we might behold the miracle and know him to be the way, the truth, and the life. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.